my great pleasure, privilege, and honor to welcome uh, our teacher this morning, Dr. Wes Hill from Trinity School of Ministry in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, not a stranger to the Advent, in fact, one who has quickly become a friend of the Advent. Um, Wes, thank you for being here very much. On behalf of Andrew and all of us, we're thrilled, delighted to have you with us. Um, uh, I won't give a long and belabored introduction, but um, Wes is the author of three books, um, familiar to many of us, um, Washington Waiting, I think written or published in 2010, is that right? And then two books were published this year. It must be a thrilling and exciting time if you're an author to have two books published within a month, um, which is, I think, how they came out. Paul and the Trinity, where he has his research interest in, in, uh, in Pauline scholarship in particular, and then also Spiritual Friendship, a book that I read um, within the last couple of months, highly recommended, um, brings to mind and really to the heart in a very evocative way, that's probably the right word, a very evocative way, some thoughts about friendship, um, about friendship in uh, a scriptural sense, an historical sense. It's really, I commend it to you. I commend it to you very deeply, um, all of which are, of course, available in our bookstore. Um, so let me open us with a prayer and then give the, the microphone to Wes. Gracious and most heavenly Father, now um, awaken our ears, we pray. Um, remove the scales from our eyes so that we would see you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Wes Hill. Can you guys hear me? There we go. There we go. Great. Well, it's wonderful to be with you. I, I, um, I don't know how many of you were in the last service, but I mentioned this is my second visit to the Advent. I came a few months ago uh, for the first time uh, to preach in the Advent uh, Noonday Preaching Series, which was, which was wonderful. Um, I, I do have sort of a long relationship with the Advent because Trinity has a lot of connections with the Advent and I have uh, dear friends who've passed through this place and spent time here. So I feel like you all are family, even though I don't know a lot of you personally. And I hope that, um, hope that in the coming months and years, I'll get to know many of you uh, more, more personally. So, um, also I should say uh, a, a fun thing for me, this trip is that my parents, Walter and Suzanne Hill are here. Can you guys just give a wave? They, they live in Arkansas, uh, where I was raised, and they drove over uh, just to hang out this weekend and to visit the Advent. So welcome to you guys. Glad you're, glad you're here, too. Um, well, I understand that I have been uh, conscripted into uh, a pre-existing series that you have, which is always fun. So um, uh, you, you, you guys are, are doing a series on community, and um, I've, I've thought a bit about community, written a bit about community, as Gil said. And so uh, Andrew, the dean, wrote to me and said, hey, would you come and talk about uh, Christian community? Why the need for Christian community? And I, and I said, that sounds like a, a fun thing to do. So that's, that's the topic for this morning. Why do we need community? And um, there's obviously a lot of different ways we could approach this. I, I, I want to kind of sketch the lay of the land, tell you what I want to do in the next uh, few minutes so that you know what to expect. And then I, I want to be sure to leave time for Q&A because I'm a very interactive uh, kind of teacher. I always tell my students, please interrupt me whenever you want. And uh, I, asked, I asked folks here if that was okay to do in this class, and they said, well, because it's such a big class, maybe you'd save it for the end. So we'll, we'll save discussion for the end today, but normally just know I would be very happy for you to interrupt me at any point uh, in, a, in a lecture and, and talk about things. So we'll, we'll leave about 10 minutes at the end for some discussion together. But um, why do we need community? Well, I wanna, I wanna talk about this um, sort of, you might say, at the horizontal level first. So what are the ways we, as we 
live together in a place like the Advent, notice ourselves needing community? What does that look like? How does that feel? What is, what's the shape of that? And then, uh, for most of the talk, for the, for the second part of the talk, I want to go to the Bible, and I want to go specifically to the New Testament, and I want to give you a couple different snapshots of why Scripture says the gospel, the gospel of God's grace, insists on us being in community with each other. Um, I know that one of the things that the Advent is known for around the country, and it's a beautiful thing, but one of the things you guys are known for is your orienting all of your preaching and teaching in your life around the gospel. Uh, The gospel of God's radical grace has been a theme at the Advent for a long, long time. And so as I was preparing, I was thinking to myself, how can I show that the gospel of God's radical grace in Christ propels us into community, shows us that we need community. So that's, that's basically the goal uh, in the next a few, few minutes. Um, but I think, I think the first thing we want to do is just think for a minute about the horizontal level. Why do we need community? Why do you need community? Um, and, and maybe I'll do something just a little bit unconventional. I, I'd like you guys to just turn to whoever's sitting next to you and just, just talk for you know, a minute or two about why, if you had to answer that question, why do you need community? Why do we need community in the church? What would you say? So just, just have a couple minutes of conversation, and then we'll come back together. Um. <laughs> All right, everybody, I want to call us back together. Let's, let's come back together. Just very, very briefly, I don't want this to get too out, too out of hand, but what are, what are some quick answers that you came up with? Why do we need community? What would you say? Just, just call it out, wherever you are. Accountability. Accountability. Commiseration. Commiseration. <laughs> Extended family. Different perspectives. Different perspectives. Acceptance. Acceptance. Encouragement. Design. Without, uh, without community, our Christianity would never be of any use to us. Without community, our Christianity would never be of any use to us. Discipleship. Discipleship. These are wonderful answers. Um, I think we could spend the rest of the class, the rest of the weeks that you have together, unpacking all the answers we just heard. I want to share with you a little bit of how I started answering that class. I just sat down at my, with my pen and paper and started making my list of why do we need community. And, and my mind went to the different, what, what we might call the different populations in the church. And I, I'm, I'm using kind of fancy word there, but I just mean the different life situations that people are in in the church. Because we're not all in the same life situation. We've all been baptized into the same family. Uh, we all name the name of the same Lord, but that doesn't erase all of our differences. We still have different cultures. We still have different needs, different, different um, uh, situations in life that we bring to the table. And, and I, just started, I just started thinking about the different populations that might be in a room like this. Um, one of the ones that I thought of first is men need community. Um, I just wrote this book on spiritual friendship, and one of the things that I found in my, in my reading, in my writing, in my talking with my friends is that men are, are very quick to say, we really need community. We really need close friendships. But a lot of men, a lot of us men, are also quick to say, we're not quite sure how to find those. 
we're a little bit unsure of where to look for closer friendships. It seems at times to some of us that women have an easier time in our culture of, of owning up to their need for friendship and community and, and, and maybe a little bit of an easier time finding it. Men have a little bit more difficult time finding it. I was, I was talking to a, a friend of mine. Um, he and his wife have adopted, um, uh, they've adopted from Sudan, uh, some of the lost boys. You, you guys know about this uh, humanitarian crisis. And um, he sent me an email that just really broke my heart uh, when I read it. I want to I read you a portion of his email about um, his, his adopted um, sons. He says, when the, when the Sudanese uh, lost boys first arrived in the United States, they would frequently hold hands with each other as a sign of their friendship. And that's very common in Africa. I lived in Cameroon for a year, and you would often see uh, men you know, who, who were married, had children, uh, but they would hold hands uh, together. It, it, it wasn't anything sexual. It wasn't, it wasn't unusual. It was just sort of something you did. Um, they would hold hands with each other as a sign of their friendship. And we, he means he and his wife, we observed this many times after church. Gradually, these boys began to hear that here in this country, this would be understood as implying a sexual relationship, and they were incredulous. There was a news show with Tom Brokaw that profiled some of these lost boys, and one of them asked Tom Brokaw whether this was true. And Brokaw conceded haltingly that here it would indeed be seen as representing something sexual. And the look on the lost boys' faces was one of intense and painful dismay. We noticed with our Sudanese foster son and his cohort that only in extremely private context would they continue holding hands with their friends. So, in other words, here's this, here's this culture that these boys were part of that was very um, excited about friendship. And when they got to this country, they found that as men, it became harder to talk about harder to practice. So, so that would be just one example. Um, maybe some of you feel that in this room, that, that for men, it's, we're not quite sure how to go about this. We know that we need it, we know that we want it, but it's difficult. Um, another population would be um, single mothers or, or mothers with young children. I, I've, you know, I've, I'm 34, and a lot of my um, friends who are, who are young women are, are in that phase of life where they're having young children, and they've, they've told me almost without exception that it's the loneliest part of their life. Because they're, they're, they're home with these children who they can't have a conversation with. Uh, they, they, the, the children keep them from going out and meeting other girlfriends or, or you know, having, having much of a social life. And it's extremely lonely. Um, maybe some of you would raise your hand and say, amen, brother. Um, uh, or, or single people in general. It doesn't have to be just, just single mothers or, or mothers of young children. Single people in general often speak about the need for community, the need for friendship. I also think, and this is something we pay a lot less attention to maybe in the church, I think married people would say they have a particular need for friendship. And, um, you know, if you've, if you've spent much time in the church, I imagine a lot of you have, have um, you know, maybe grown up in the church or spent a lot of years in the church. But one of the things, if you haven't grown up in the church, one of the things that you, when you, when you become a Christian, you start hanging around other Christians, you notice that Christians will sometimes speak so um, highly about their spouse as their, this is, this is the one who completes me, or this is my best friend. And that hasn't always been the case. Uh, a lot of Christians like talking about that, uh, talking that way, but that hasn't always been the case. If you read old novels, you know, from, from Britain, um, uh, like Middlemarch, something like that by George Eliot, a lot of times the, the, the married couples would say, you know, 
we, we really, we don't necessarily think of our spouse as our best friend, per se. We love our spouse, care about our spouse, but we need other friends. And I think a lot of that language has sort of dropped away in the church in some ways. We don't, we don't often think married people need friendship and community just as much as single people do. Um, it's vitally important for a marriage to not sort of just turn in on itself, but it needs to be open in hospitality. It needs, it needs the input and the support of others in the Christian community. So marriage needs friendship. Married people need friendship, just like single people need friendship. So we could go on and on, right? We could, we could spend all morning listing the different ways in the church that we all feel our need for community. And I want to encourage you in the, in the coming weeks, continue to think along these lines. I mean, maybe, maybe make some notes. What, what would be the ways that you in particular, as in your corner of the church, how do you need community? Maybe compare notes with others in the class about how they need community. But I want to shift gears a little bit now. I want, and, I want, and I want to talk about not just our need for community on the horizontal plane, but what is it about the vertical plane what is it about the way God's grace breaks in on our sinfulness and rescues us and redeems us and forgives us and transforms us? What is it about that vertical mercy coming down, that vertical radical grace breaking into the fallenness of our world? What is it about that that unleashes us to start talking about community? Let me, let me see if I can put it a different way. I think we need to not only look at things from our human perspective, but we need to look at things from God's perspective and ask, what is it about God? What is it about the gospel of grace that requires us to think about community? And I want to, in the time we have left, I want to take you to two different passages in the New Testament where I think we see this vertical dimension. And the first one is Galatians 2, Galatians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, you're welcome to do that. I'm going to I'm going to try to make it understandable. Even if you don't have a Bible in front of you, you can still sort of follow my train of thought. Um, but um, what I want to try to show you here is that we, we need community, according to Galatians 2. We need community because if we avoid community, if we hold ourselves back from community, we miss out, we end up denying something crucial about the very radical gospel of grace that you are all about here at the Advent. So, so let's, let's look at this uh, story that Paul tells in Galatians 2 about his confrontation with Peter, his confrontation with Cephas. Um, this is probably a, a familiar story. I imagine this is a text that gets preached on quite a bit at the Advent or talked about at the Advent. Certainly in your history it has been. But um, for, for, for those of you who need a bit of a refresher, look at verse 11. So this is, this is Paul's story of one of the most major moments of conflict in the early church. And it was between him as the apostle of the Gentiles and Peter, who was a companion of the Lord and uh, one of the pillars in the Jerusalem church. So Paul uh, meets up with Peter in Antioch and he opposes Peter. Look at verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, this is a very radical moment in, in early Christianity. One apostle confronting another apostle. And if you're, if, sometimes my students r- wrestle with this. You know, how are we supposed to trust uh, you know, the, the, the apostles if they can't even get along with each other? So we have to wrestle through that in class. But this was a really seminal key moment in the life of the early church. And the conflict was basically, if you look at verse 12, it, it basically had to do with Peter's 
lack of hospitable behavior. So look at verse 12. Before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. So that's, that's the situation. Certain people um, came from the Jerusalem church, from James. James was the sort of leader of the Jerusalem church. And apparently they said something to Peter. They confronted Peter about his practice. Peter was a Jew and he was a Christian. Uh, and he was, he was sitting down and having table fellowship with other Christians who were not Jews, who were Gentiles. And he was, he was very committed to this, very committed to that kind of hospitality until these people from Jerusalem come and confront him about it. And then he withdraws. Then he stops eating with Gentiles. When they came, the verse continues, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, we know in the first century there were a lot of different ways that Jewish people thought about this kind of table fellowship, this kind of um, uh, ritual purity. We talked about that in the sermon a bit this morning. Um, And it's not exactly clear that there was a hard and fast line that if you're a faithful Torah-observing, law-observing Jew, you would not be able to eat with Gentiles. Certainly, you would not be able to eat the same thing that Gentiles eat. But Peter seems to perhaps be going above and beyond even what many of his fellow Jews would have done. He's not only going to eat kosher himself, he's going to make sure he's nowhere near a kitchen where kosher is not being kept. He's, he's going to withdraw even from the same table as Gentiles. And Paul is very upset about this. And look at what he says, uh, verse 14. Paul says, When I saw that their conduct, meaning um, Peter and Barnabas, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter, you're acting hypocritically. You yourself have been living in a certain way, that you're now not even extending that same courtesy to the Gentiles. You're, you're making them feel like second-class citizens by withdrawing from this table fellowship. You've gotten this all into a mess, and you've besmirched yourself in the process. You've become a hypocrite. Now, what's very interesting about this is Paul doesn't just leave it at confrontation. He goes to theology. He goes to the gospel. In other words, he says, I'm not just going to make this about interpersonal strife with Peter. I'm going to take you to the deepest rationale for why I'm saying what I'm saying. And that's when we come to verse 15. Look at verse 15. He's saying this to Peter. He says, we, meaning Peter, you and me, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So we were born with the law. We were born with the, 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 the revelation of God. We're not like all those idol-worshiping Gentiles over there. And yet, verse 16, we... Peter, you and me, even though we were born this way, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, you and me, Peter, we also, even though we're Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the the theological dynamite that Paul is pulling out here. He's saying, Peter, it's not just that you're being rude. It's not just that you're being sort of aloof. 
It's that you've missed something crucial about the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. By by holding yourself aloof from table fellowship with Gentiles, from eating with Gentiles, you're forgetting something crucial about your own Christian journey, your own Christian story, and that is that when God accepted you in Christ, it was not on the basis of your Jewish observance. And when God accepted Gentiles in Christ, it was in disregard for their idolatry. So either their worthlessness, because they were idol worshipers, or your worthfulness, because you were a faithful Jew, neither of those things matters. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We, whether we're Jews or whether we're Gentiles, we all are justified on the same basis, which is simply faith in Jesus Christ and not works of the law. That's Paul's argument. And Paul, I think, is probably thinking of his own experience. Look back at, look back at chapter 1. This is how he describes his own story. Um, in chapter 1 of Galatians, uh, verse 12, um, excuse me, verse 13, he says to the Galatians, you guys have heard of my former life in Judaism. So before I became a Christian, you've heard about what I was like, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But, that's how verse 15 starts. So you might, you might, you might have expected an and, right? I was, I was climbing the ladder. I was doing well. I was advancing beyond many of my fellow Jews. I was, I was on the road to success. I was doing well here. But... You might have thought, well, the next verse would say, and so God rewarded me. I was doing really well, and so God crowned me with a prize. But that's not what happened. Uh, Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Paul says, when I got the revelation of Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, it wasn't because I had been advancing in Judaism beyond many of my fellow Jews. It was because something had happened outside that timeline entirely, even before I was born, before I had done anything good or anything bad. God had already decided that he would set me apart and reveal his son to me. So therefore, to now insist on my Jewish privileges, to now insist on my pedigree and hold myself aloof from Gentiles would be a total misunderstanding. It would be a total failure to grasp the radical grace of God in Christ, which rescued me regardless of my success or lack of success. That wasn't the criteria. It was simply and purely God's pleasure to reveal his son to me. And that's what he calls Peter back to. In chapter 2, he says, we know that, a per- this is Gen- uh, Galatians two sixteen. we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says to Peter, that means that you must, it's not only that you may, you must eat with Gentiles. You can't pull yourself away from community. Because to pull yourself away from Gentiles is to suddenly look down your nose and say, God is treating them differently than God's treating me. And that can't be right. 
because what the gospel does is it levels the playing field. It puts us all in the same boat. It binds us all together. We're one at the foot of the cross. And therefore, we've got to be in community with each other. It's not an option. To be a Christian is to be pulled into community with each other. It's for Peter to be pulled into people he doesn't want to eat with. It's for those people to be pulled into community with Peter. It's for Jews and Gentiles together as one new humanity to meet together and share table fellowship at the foot of the cross. So that's, that's I think, the, the, the radical vertical dimension of this thing, is that there's something about grace that when it cuts away all the worthiness of Paul and Peter as faithful Jews and it cuts away all the unworthiness of idol-worshiping Gentiles, it suddenly leaves everybody with empty hands. It leaves everybody without their status symbols to cling to and hold themselves back from, from eating with each other. It takes all those things out of our hands and it, it, it shoves us around the same table, makes sure that we share the same meal, and of course we believe that's most radical in Holy Communion, right? What's the most beautiful thing about Holy Communion? Well, to me, it's that everything about me that would somehow distinguish me from you is disregarded when we all are kneeling at that communion rail at the same place at the same time. And then it doesn't matter where I'm from or what achievements I have achieved in my life or what lack of achievements I've achieved, and it doesn't matter what you. We're all kneeling on the same communion rail there. We're all holding our hands open and God is feeding us. That's the radical thing about grace. And that's why Paul says we need community. We've got to eat with each other because that's what the gospel pushes us into. All right, one, one more snapshot of this. And then um, I do, I do want to make sure that we have time to talk about all this because I want to hear your thoughts on this. Um, so if I had to put all that I just said in a, in a thesis, I would say table fellowship, table fellowship with our fellow Christians is the embodied, tangible way of expressing the theology of justification by faith. Let me say that one more time. Enjoying table fellowship with each other is the embodied, tangible way of expressing the theology of justification by faith. Or if you wanted to flip that around, to express justification by faith, to really believe that and preach that and teach that means to sit at the same table, to go to the same church, to kneel at the same communion rail with everybody here. I love the way Rowan Williams says this. You don't get to choose your family. That's the most radical meaning of Holy Communion. You don't get to choose who you eat with. And that's why we need community. Okay, one more, one more snapshot here. Go to, go to 1 John, 1 John chapter 4. I'm about to start a whole semester of teaching uh, uh, this, this book. So I have been spending a lot of time in 1 John um, lately. But um, in 1 John... We see something, I think, that's pretty similar to Galatians 2, uh, although the social context, the cultural context is a little bit different. But it's the same idea that there's something about the way God has broken into the human plane vertically. God has come down to us. God has revealed himself to us. There's something about that that pushes us, uh, propels us into relationships of love and community with each other. And I just want to kind of walk you through how that happens uh, in 1 John chapter 4. Um, and if I, if I had to 
summarize what I'm about to say in a, in a sentence, I would say this. We need community. We need community. We must be in community because to avoid community is to deny God's love for us. To avoid community is to deny God's love for us. Now let me show you how I get there. So this chapter opens with a warning. 1 John chapter 4 opens with a warning. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, this is a part of the New Testament that comes along. It's probably written much later than Galatians. Um, So Galatians is written very early. Paul's kind of laying the foundation for the Christian church. Uh, This epistle is written later in the first century, and it's at that point in the life of the church where there are a lot of competing ideas about Jesus that are starting to get out there. A lot of different competing spiritual messages, kind of similar to, to our day, right? I mean, if you go into a Barnes & Noble, you're going to find a lot of different competing spirits on the bookshelves, right? And, and you're sort of wondering, who do we believe? Who's trustworthy? And so this author is warning. He's saying, don't believe every spirit. You're going you're gonna to encounter a lot of voices, a lot of religious perspectives at this point. Don't believe every one of them. So the the conflict of this passage is, how do we figure out which ones to believe? How do we figure out which spirit to listen to? So look at verse 2. He says, by this, he's now going to give a criterion, by this you know the spirit of God. So if you're wondering, is this simply a human spirit that I'm listening to, or is this in fact the spirit of God? By this you know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So apparently there were certain spirits that were not very (laughs) Jesus-y. They weren't very Christocentric. They were were off on some hidden esoteric wisdom. You know, we want to give you the real meat of of, of theology, they may have said. You know, we we want to let you into the secret mysteries. But, But this author, John, says, no, The way you know God's Spirit is that God's Spirit is going to consistently point you back to the incarnate Jesus, the Jesus who's come in the flesh, the one who's embodied, the one who died, really died on a cross, the one who was really raised from the dead. And um, this is really important, (laughs) uh, to put it it mildly. Uh, God, God, God is known through Jesus Christ and not in any other way. That's really important. Um, some of you will know about the, the famous Barman Declaration. This was the, the document largely written by Karl Barth um, during the rise of Nazism in, in Germany. And um, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of Christian theologians at that period were appealing to a certain spirit. That was their language, the spirit of, 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 the, of the German people. Um, and, and some of you may remember, the Barman Declaration starts very famously, there is only one word of God with which we have to do, Jesus Christ. And what, what they were doing is they were driving a stake in the ground and saying, whatever spirit you're hearing about from your pulpit on Sunday morning, whatever spirit you're hearing your, your clergy talk about as the Nazi party comes to power, don't believe it if it doesn't orient itself around Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ is the only word of God with which we have to do. 
Um, and there's a wonderful expression of this um, in, a, in another theologian that I really like, Thomas Torrance. Uh, Torrance was a, a later follower of Karl Barth, and before he became a famous theologian in Scotland, he served as a chaplain, a military chaplain. And there's this beautiful story told about Torrance uh, when he was on the, on the battlefield, and there was this private who had been um, injured in the fighting, and he was lying on the ground, he was dying, and Torrance was walking by, probably wearing his collar, so he was identifiable as a, as a as clergy. And this private grabs his arm, and he, he said to him, and Torrance later said that this question sort of shaped his ministry for the coming decades, but this, this private grabbed his arm and said, Padre, is God really like Jesus? Really interesting question, isn't it? I mean, what he was asking was, how do I know that when I die and when I get to the judgment seat, when I see the face of God, I'm not going to see a terror or an ogre or a monster? How do I know that? Can you give me the confidence that when I see God, he's going to look exactly like Jesus? Because I really like Jesus. Jesus is the one who touched the lepers. Jesus is the one who healed the sick. Jesus is the one who forgave sinners. I know that I can count on Jesus to be merciful to me, but what about God? Is God really like Jesus? And Torrance said that it was the great privilege of that moment for him to say to that dying private, God is absolutely like Jesus. Because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus is the perfect imprint, as Hebrews 1 says it, of God's very character. Jesus is the perfect expression of God's character. And so Torrance later spent all of his life sort of unpacking that sentence that he said to that, to that dying private that day. But th- I think that's exactly what this author is wanting to say. He's wanting to say, if you want to know whether any particular voice you're hearing or message you're hearing or um, inclination you're feeling is really the Spirit of God, ask yourself, does it point me to the self-giving, the self-offering, the gracious condescension of the incarnate Jesus Christ? Because if, if it does that, that's the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's the way you tell the Holy Spirit. So he, he continues, verse 3, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, whom you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, what he does next, and this is where I think it, it, it gets us to, to the topic for today, and I've got to be quick if we're going to have any time to talk. Um, so he, he goes down in verse 7, and he says, Because God has shown himself to be God in Jesus Christ, because God has revealed himself as the self-giving one in Jesus Christ, what that means is that you and I are sort of caught up into that movement so that we become givers of ourselves too in the love with which God gives us. So look at how he says it, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And now here's the kicker, verse, four, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
Do you hear how that's exactly the same thought as Galatians 2? Paul says to Peter, Peter, if God accepted you and me, regardless of our worth, regardless of how much success we'd experienced in being faithful Jews, and if God accepted Gentiles on the same basis, if that's how radical God's grace is, then we need community with each other. And this author says, if God himself is love, and if God has shown his face in Jesus Christ, if Jesus really is the true embodiment of God, and if he's given himself for all the world, enemies, everybody, gave himself for every last one, if that's how God is, then we also ought to be caught up into that. We, we have already been caught up into it. We've already been born of God. And so we're being pulled and propelled into lives of self-giving and community with each other. So why do we need community? Well, I mean, we could talk about that on the horizontal level, all of our needs for community, but we can also talk about it at the vertical level. We need community. We need to be in community with one another. You need to be in small groups. You need to be in classes like this with each other because God is the kind of God who, when he comes down to us in Jesus, he breaks apart our divisions, he, he opens our hands, pulls us to the same communion rail together, and makes sure that we're all on level ground at the foot of the cross. So why do we need community? Because that's how God's made us to be. That's how God's called us to be. That's how the gospel is. That's community, you might say, is the shape of the gospel. Community is the way we, we show with our bodies and with our lives that we believe in radical grace. It's the way that we demonstrate our confidence in God's radical mercy for us. So I want to stop there because I want to leave. We maybe have, what, about two minutes, Gil, for, for conversation? So any, any just quick comments or, or, or uh, questions about any, anything that I've said? I'm sorry I didn't leave more time. Well, I'm going to uh, quote Paul Zoll's Mockingbird message this week for preachers. Preach to your, this is how you shrink your church. Preach to your congregation, not as individuals, but as a worship, worshiping community. This way, no one will, no individual sufferer will get the idea that God has a word for him or her concretely. Mm. So I think, mm. I, I guess what I'm hearing is that it's easy for us to hide in a community mm. and not be seen where I, I clearly believe, and I know Paul believes it, that, that, uh, that community is uh, nurturing and uh, right. is for us, but that idea of, uh, the, of overlooking the individual or, or getting one-on-one. Right, and, and maybe, that's, maybe that's a good place to just remind us that when we talk about community, we're, we're talking not about just coming into a big, huge room where you can sort of slip out, but we're talking about coming into a network of relationships where you can be known. You can really, you know, show who you really are and, and find acceptance and, and, find, and find hope in that situation. So, so thanks. Maybe we'll make this the last comment so that I can go get vested for the next uh, service. So, sorry. What do you think the gospel says uh, to us about being in community with people who are not Christians? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I think... I think um, I, I think those passages we just looked at would probably have the seed of the answer to that. Because what, what, what God does is God goes looking for people who, he's, who, he, who he has no connection with, you might say. I mean, when God, when God dies for us in Jesus Christ, who does he die for? Enemies, right? He doesn't die for his friends. 
Paul says in Romans 5, it's no big deal to die for your friend. This is a paraphrase. You know, uh, any, any one of us might be willing to die for a friend. Any one of us might be willing to die for a family member. But God goes looking for people who are not like God. God goes looking for enemies to die for. And so if that's how God is, then our love can't just, we can't just, as Jesus says, invite the people we like to our dinner parties. We have to invite those we don't like. Uh, we have to invite those who are outside of the church. We have to, we have to go looking for those on the margins. Uh, so I, I, think that, I think that the kind of grace God gives would, would be the answer to that, to that question. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't leave enough time for, for conversation, but we should probably end it there. So thank you guys very much for letting me, letting me come. Um,